best cities in the world are going to be the ones who, you know, moving forward, are going to be the ones who can can legitimately display and show health metrics from a kind of biological perspective. Welcome to 15 Minutes With. I'm sitting here with Jake Heitland. Jake, could you give yourself a little introduction, please? Yep, thanks, Josh, and thanks for having me. Um, always good to chat to you. Yep, so my name's Jake Heitland. Uh, I'd say I'm an urbanist, strategist, and generally just yelling about better cities for everyone, including the planet. Um, I currently work at Lendlease across our development uh, portfolio. Again, just trying to ensure better, better outcomes from a sustainability and, and human-centric design perspective. Uh, and always focusing on health within that as well. Um, and I also run an account called Right to the City, um, getting everyone to uh, open up and, and have an increased dialogue about cities and our right to the city. Awesome. That's great. So, Jake, question number one. What's the best health-focused project you've seen or worked on? I will go with worked on uh, because it's been a big part of my career the last few years. Uh, this was called the Loneliness Lab, uh, and this kicked off as a a uh, partnership between Lendlease and Collectively. Uh, Lendlease, several years ago, kind of asked a, a big group of people who were living or involved in the communities that were involved with um, in delivering urban regeneration projects about what their biggest concern was in cities. Uh, and surprisingly, at the time, uh, the biggest concern that came up was loneliness and social isolation. And this is just when I had started at Lendlease and uh, got involved as, in the first kind of cohort of the design sprint, which is a week-long design sprint with over 100 different people. Um, in the first day, you know, public sector, private sector, architects, doctors, you name it, the kind of anyone uh, working within the built environment and health um, was involved. And that kicked off and started a, a whole series of two, two and a half years worth of research into the connections between the built environment and loneliness. Um, and I think through that working, some of my biggest takeaways from that were, you know, the three different types of loneliness that we experienced. And that's obviously been completely exacerbated and, 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 and shown in such a greater light in the last 18 months from the pandemic. Uh, but, you know, we experience, of course, loneliness from others and that lack of connection from others. We experience a, a, a lack of connection and loneliness from nature. And we also experience, experience a lack and connection, a lack of connection and loneliness from, from ourselves. And, you know, typically throughout, you know, our cities, uh, I see this sort of hardware, software and code Hardware being, of course, the, the physical built environment, the software being the sort of programming and um, and you know, how we bring ourselves together, what we do, the types of events, and the code being the sort of social norms or social stigmas that are associated with connection. Um, and seeing everything that we do at Lendlease, but everything we do in terms of how we talk about cities as either helping or hindering connection. And you know, it couldn't be more true, especially after this last 18 months that, you know, we must be connected to each other and we desperately need that type of connection. Um, and of course, to nature and to ourselves. And we've had a lot of time for reflection, but uh, this ended up kind of creating a community of over 900 plus people globally, uh, all banded together around this initiative, connecting different people from different fields of work that I don't think normally would have been connected. Um, and then also we were able to influence an all-party parliamentary group on um, looking into a connected recovery. So as part of the sort of build back better rhetoric across the UK, uh, this all of our work sort of fed into and influenced that parliamentary group's work 
uh, in forming a recommendation to the to the government around how we create a connected recovery, not just recovery, but you know, one where we are connected in sort of mental health, loneliness, uh, and social isolation are at the core of our thinking in terms of everything that we do and invest in moving forward. That's an awesome answer. So 900 people over the course of, is it three years the Loneliness Lab has been running? Uh, we're probably closer to two and a half at this point. Oh, you're uh, showing so off now. <laughs> we kicked off in October 2018 was when the first sort of uh, yeah, week-long design sprint, which was an amazing opportunity to sort of yeah, get out of the office and you know, we did things quicker in four days than it probably takes six months to do things in a normal corporate space. Um, and we had, you know, the the one that I had worked on during the design sprint, I worked with um, a great colleague from, from Arab, uh, Leticia, and we had a hundred pound budget for three days to look at so, uh, social isolation and loneliness within student accommodation. And whew, the stories were, were rough. Um, you know, there was basically this big gap between from a, from a pure property perspective, uh, you know, the universities do not own the accommodation most in most cases. So therefore, there's a big gap between this, the mental health services that the university would offer and the lack of mental health services that the actual operators of the student accommodation would offer. And because they're on a sort of short turnover period, you can't decorate, you can't leave a door open, you know, you, you go from living in your sort of childhood bedroom call it moving from home for the first time you move into london and all of a sudden you're kind of in a sort of you know white celled off fluorescently lit space uh so you're surrounded by a drinking culture which if you don't participate in that can be very isolating but again this was a it was a really brilliant example in my mind of sort of stop getting stuck in months and months and months of research not to say that <laughs> we don't need academia and academia and that the sort of the brilliance that comes with doing these really in-depth research, but how much you can find out by just going on the street and asking people questions and speaking to people, you know, in a matter of two days, you, I, we got you know, such incredible insight that I think normally it would take months for people to find through, uh, we'll call it proper channels. <laughs> it's, it's a fantastic point. Uh, academia endeavors to own knowledge and create a culture of knowledge supremacy whereas as soon as you start speaking to people about their local environment nobody knows it best nobody can express something better than the people living it and it's a, it's a fantastic point and something that we endeavored to do at centric so you're really uh, i mean i guess listeners can understand why jake is the first person to come on the uh, podcast with us because we get on great we have the same minds in that way and uh, but it's true it, no one knows an area better than the people that live there and it's respecting that intelligence and it's treating feedback and the lived experience as genuine just because it may not fit with a current research guideline or comfort a commercial guideline it doesn't negate it or shouldn't negate it anymore but so that's a great answer thanks Jake, for uh, question number one there so number two that i wanted to move over and it's it's a different type of question uh, what kind or what code of policy or practice do you want to see changed yeah so i've been thinking about this one and in, in a lot of the work the last couple of years um, I've been involved on the, the Euston Station Regeneration in, in North London and how that connects to HS2, how you're bringing together kind of disparate communities on, on either side of the sort of railroad tracks. Um, you know, and a really sobering statistic I learned I think, two years ago now was that on average, the people living in these estates live uh, 10 years less than the average Camden resident. 
and this is down to you know many factors, but one of the largest ones is that Euston Road that the, they, they front onto is the most polluted road in London. And I come from a kind of small town um, in a place where I don't, you know, we never, no one really ever talks about air pollution. And I've lived in cities now for probably close to a decade and been <laughs> fleeing the countryside ever since. But, you know, this air pollution piece is so massive in terms of its impact and its, its kind of vileness in, a, in the way that it's, 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 it's silent, it's invisible, um, but it's so detrimental to our health. And the people who are living there, who have no choice, who are not the polluters, have no choice in kind of you know consuming this to breathe. You know, to breathe is is life. You know, if we weren't breathing, we wouldn't be here. Um, you know, so there's a kind of, I guess, to come back to the to the actual question itself, and something that you know Ericelli has really inspired me on in her in her rhetoric and how she talks about this. But you know, absolute zero tolerance policy for air pollution. There is no sort of oh, this is the minimum threshold or the maximum threshold, or this, here's the safe threshold for air pollution. Here's the WHO standard for how much air pollution you know, the human body can tolerate. At any point that you are inhaling it, it's unhealthy, it's bad for you. And I especially think about you know, children. You know, I was lucky, I guess, enough to grow up in a, in a really small town in the Midwest in America. Well, lucky in regards to air pollution, maybe not lucky in regards to social considerations and <laughs> other stigmas existing there. But, um, you know, we were cycling around, you know, we had, the only thing we could smell was sort of uh, manure. But again, that wasn't, you know, this crazy level of air pollution that, you know, no one was talking about, no one was thinking about that. And, you know, if I think about life in cities today, and especially after the pandemic, and of course, we've gone through another period where people are considering leaving the city. You know, what's the legitimacy of the city? Does it still stand on, you know, the sort of economic geography is changing? Do you need to be in the city to work in the city? You know, for many of us, we don't now. Um, but again, I think in order for their kind of long-term legitimacy in the way that they can connect us, you know, going back to the this point, and, and all the things in, the, in the, the higher sense of tolerance that you can find in cities, you know, they need to prove themselves to be healthy. Because otherwise, you know, the, the draw of clean air, fresh air, green space, and, you know, just <laughs> cleaner air out in the countryside could be a big draw for not just for families, but for anyone who's you know, taking their health a bit more seriously, especially post-pandemic. So I think you know, the, the best cities in the world are going to be the ones who, you know, moving forward, are going to be the ones who can, can legitimately display and show health metrics from a kind of biological perspective so yeah again very long answer but again zero tolerance policy for air pollution anywhere but especially in our cities it's a great answer love it jake following on to question three who are the three people you admire in your professional peer network that other people should read or follow about yeah so i'd say one of my my longer term inspirations has kind of always been Indy Johar and the entire team at sort of Dark Matter Labs. Um, I remember coming across their Medium channel a few years ago and probably slowly but surely each, each article being slowly a little bit more and more radicalized <laughs> in, the, in, the way that I, in the way that I think about cities, the way I think about our kind of macroeconomic policies, the, you know, the dual challenges of sort of digitization and climate change. You know, how are we going to adapt our societies for long-term success? You know, how are we going to basically ensure the success of the human race and our planet moving forward? You know, we cannot shy away from these big, scary questions. And 
indie and that whole team at Dark Matter Labs, every time I speak to them or interact with them or read more of their work, they are A, never shying away from these big, scary questions, but B, coming at it from a place of compassion. Going back to the kind of idea of, uh, not idea, but the issue of, of air pollution, uh, Rosamund Adu Kisi Debra, who is the mother of Ella Roberta, who is the first um, human being to have uh, air pollution as the cause of death on the death certificate, which happened just last year, or the, the, the verdict came through last year. And I came across, I, I was reading the news about Ella, um, but again, R Rosamond, her mother, has been at the forefront of yelling <laughs> about this, rightfully so. And, and I guess I've always just been so impressed is the wrong word. I guess there's this empathetic kind of heartstring that just hits me every time that she has the strength to continue working through, of course, the own trauma of losing her daughter, but then to sit there and fight for it every single day, in and out of court, on in and off of uh, you know social media. Uh, and I just think the, the resiliency within that and the strength within that is is inspiring for all of us. And again, the reasons what you know this makes it real. You know, we talk about air pollution. Oh, you know, millions of people will die from air pollution this year alone. Okay, well, you know, there's such big numbers we can't comprehend it. But then you know, you see a picture of a, a, a nine-year-old young black girl from South London who's no longer with us and didn't get to grow up and experience her life and do all the things that any any human being deserves to do. Um, all lost because you know a lack of policy and a lack of effort to amend this issue. Well, I guess that flows into my 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 third answer there, which is um, the really really uh, impassioned. Uh, young women um, from across South London uh, at the group called Choked Up. Um, I came across their work, I think, earlier this year, but their names are Jolly, Destiny, Nealetti, and Kadeen. Uh, and they've just they've created some, some absolutely brilliant content in terms of road signs, videos, working with TFL, again, raising the issue of, you know, why is air pollution disproportionately affecting black and brown people in our communities? Um, and you know, it's again they raised this point. This is not a matter of uh, not a matter of legality. This is absolutely a matter of of need and the right to breathe, the right to clean air. Um, and again, you know, the people who are creating this pollution are not the ones who are usually impacted by it. Um, so again, you know, really inspirational work. And you know, a group of I believe they're all seventeen. <laughs> And, you know, they're, they're bringing more truth to the sector than, uh, you know, sometimes people who are sector experts and such, such things. So, again, you know, really brilliant to see kind of guerrilla politics, I'd call it, um, and guerrilla warfare in the, in, in, a, in the fight for justice in, in this space. Amazing. There's a theme of courage running through mm. the three uh, groups of people and, and individuals that you've named there. And I think that's that's a great thing to believe in. So uh, hopefully, if people haven't come across those people, go look for them. I think with certainly with the young people, the young women from Choked Up, the reason that it's so powerful, it is their life. And it's the same with Rosamond. It's her life. She's living the trauma constantly. It is not a day job. And that difference, I think, is huge. And that difference needs to be respected. It goes back to some of your earlier points about respecting the lived experience. And the lived experience is, at the moment, 
unwarranted form of recognition uh, that needs to drive cities more. We're, we're far too analytical about it. It's very easy to hide behind a desk. Uh, so I love the idea that courage uh, runs through people that you want others to see and that we should uh, believe. One of the great things I listened to in the say was on a podcast with the on the RSA. And it's not too long ago, I'll put a link in the show notes for this. But he talks about mental health. And he talks about a problem in mental health, not the, as he says, about the issues, the macro issues of depression, anxiety that are you know, clinically diagnosed in these ways. But he talks about the concept of micro hope. And that mm. certainly in Britain, and I think he does define it to a lot of uh, lower and middle income communities that the concept of hope has slowly been eroded. And this is where we see people unable to potentially imagine a different future. And that's a lot of what his work is about, is imagining a new system. So his whole thing is how do we get people to imagine these new systems? And he's a very inspiring man in that way. So I think those are great selections, Jake. Um, now, on the idea of hope, where do you find hope in what you do that inspires you to keep pushing the boundaries, to keep yelling at people in suits, to keep yelling and shouting with great information, great data, great ideas, great passion uh, to people who aren't used to being yelled at or think they don't have to be yelled at or sometimes want to be yelled at, but they need, you know, need it done in a certain way. Kind of, where do you find the hope that inspires you to keep pushing effectively up against a brick wall and hopefully knock it over into sandbags? That's my really direct answer. It's something I've been reflecting on all of June during Pride Month in, in, in regards to what I do, why I do, why I do what I do and why I care so much. Um, I've been told I care too much sometimes in the corporate spaces that I've occupied in my career so far, which I find disheartening, but also <laughs> it fuels me even more. And I think, you know, I wrote down in a sort of answer to this question, I oscillate between extreme optimism and extreme rage. And I think through through some of these these groups and people that I've mentioned so far, I, I can I can place some of that optimism and also some of that rage. And in, in, you know, there's a there's a sense of not being alone in that. But I guess coming back to this kind of the actual question, you know, what, why do I do what I do? I would be dead without cities. Full stop. You know, as a giant two meter tall queer ginger man from Wisconsin in a ten thousand white Christian farming town. You know, cities have saved my life. Cities have changed fundamentally who I am, how I think, the tolerance and empathy I have for you know, all other human experiences other than my own. You know, I only know my experience. And I think, you know, this is why I want to yell and so and yell so impassioned, impassioned, passionately about, about uh, why we need to make cities. A, inclusive, B, economically inclusive, C, areas of opportunity and beauty for anyone who wants to come and participate. And I think I come across some of the work of um, uh, David Harvey and Henry Loughborough, you know, originally Henry Loughborough out of the 68 riots and 69 riots in Paris. You know, this idea that we all have the right to the city and the right to the city is not just about, you know, access to resources, but, you know, it's about coming to these places to you know, recreate yourself, recreate the city more after your sort of own heart's desire. And 
again, coming back to this point of I would be dead without cities, and, and I think especially from this queer experience, you know, I've I wouldn't have I couldn't have survived in some of these areas. You know, some of the areas where I grew up are the places that gave me so much of a my trauma, but b my sort of uh, you know, mental health conditions in those days. You know, where you know at certain points. I didn't have that courage or that hope to dream. I had no micro hope. I thought that was it. That was, I was confined to my tiny little town and that would be it, it forever. And that got me to the point of, you know, you know, highly depressed and, and suicidal for a period of time. And, and I just wrote a piece actually a few months ago, I just celebrated 10 years of since that suicidal phase and just thinking about how you can't even <laughs> basically you have to stick around for the dreams that you can't even dream up of now. And I think this was really beautiful to reflect on for me because, you know, 17 year old me could have never imagined that I'd be sat here talking to you, yelling about air pollution and, and you know, the betterment of cities for everyone uh, in my flat in London. You know, he couldn't have made that, made that up if he tried. So I guess I come back to this all the time of why do I do this? Why do I do this? Why do I do this? And what gives me hope? I get hope from other people. I get hope from conversations. I'm highly extroverted, uh, which has also been a struggle for me the last year. But I get hope that I'm not the only angry one or the only extremely optimistic one. You know, there are other people out there who are, you know, dreaming of these new futures and trying to create the kind of cookie crumb trail for us to get there. And at every different layer of our society. So there is so much hope there. And, and I think there's also, we have, um, we don't have an option. <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because there is no other option. You know, we cannot continue on in this sort of highly consumeristic, capitalistic, uh, racist society that we live in. You know, it's got us in this mess, and we can look around, and it's hard to watch the news these days because there's a mess everywhere you look. So obviously, something you know, the system itself is broken, and therefore we need to bring about you know massive amounts of system change. So in order to do a systems change, we're going to need not just one actor, not just two actors, but we're going to need everyone involved at every single layer of our society, dreaming of these new features, acting with hope, and really importantly, acting with love towards each other. Because without that, I don't know where we're headed, and I don't actually want to answer that question. No, that was, Jake, that was a, um, a beautiful and powerful answer to a question. So thank you very much for sharing that with us. Uh, if anyone wants to find you and maybe speak with you or just see more about you know, you and your life and your personality is the best place to find you on the Instagram account, which is at right. And that's actually right as in W R I T E right to the city. Is that the best place or how else would someone yeah. get in touch with you? I mean, it's been a little bit slow the last few months on right to the city because it's actually a platform trying to get other people to submit minimum of one, one picture and at least one word. I hope they would write more words. Uh, but again, you know, talking about, cities and what cities mean to them. It could be a park bench, could be a, a picture of the city they come from and how they miss home, you know, anything. But I think it's the point in that was trying to get a dialogue that if everyone was thinking about the cities more and more and, and as a tool for, dare I say, revolution, um, you know, it could become a, a bigger part of our sort of Overton window of our political rhetoric. Um, this is me going from micro to macro very quickly. Uh, but again, just having a, a space of conversation about our cities and what they mean to us. Um, but then, yeah, you can also find me on, on Twitter um, at my name, Jake Kiteland. Um, not too active on there, but again, finding more and more courage as every day goes on to 
keep yelling, especially in digital spaces, which can be a bit scary. Jake, thanks very much for coming on to 15 Minutes With. Uh, We look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks so much, Josh. Fifteen minutes with has been made possible by generous supporters and donators to Centric Lab via our Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash Centric Lab, as well as our Urban Health Council sponsors, the National Lottery Community Fund. If you're interested in more information about this, please visit urbanhealthcouncil.com. Thanks.